Menu Feed, a bi-weekly podcast from Winsight Media. I'm Pat Kobe, Senior Editor of Restaurant Business and Food Service Director. Today I'm chatting with Gavin Kaysen, an award-winning chef who advanced his culinary career in Daniel Balud's restaurants in New York City, but moved back to his hometown in Minneapolis eight years ago. There he keeps extremely busy operating four restaurants, including Spoon and Stable, Mara, Soka, and Demi, as well as several locations of Belcourt Bakery. He also found time to self-publish his first cookbook called At Home, just released last month, and he collaborates with guest chefs for his Synergy series videos and mentors rising stars in the industry. Listen as Gavin describes his role of chef as CEO, how At Home evolved from his personal and professional culinary experiences, and why geography no longer plays a part in the recognition and success of a restaurant. Welcome, Gavin. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Sure. Well, uh, let's begin by you telling me a little bit about the culinary journey that brought you back to Minnesota. Yeah, so I was working in New York City and I was working for Danielle Balud at the time, uh, running Cafe Balud, which was on the Upper East Side. Uh, I had the pleasure of actually being his director of culinary operations for that brand. So I was in charge of the Cafe Balud in New York City, also the Cafe Balud in Toronto, Canada, as well as the one in Palm Beach, Florida. So my life was busy sort of going up and down the coast, running those operations, helping manage the teams with Chef Danielle uh, and his and his big executive team that he had. And, you know, I, I I worked for him just shy of eight years. I don't know if I necessarily, I, I actually can tell you, I promise, I, ne- I did not think that I would come back to Minneapolis. Like that wasn't part of my aspiration or my thought. And and the reason is not to to belittle what Minneapolis was doing, but more that I, I do believe that our profession has changed so much in the years that geographically it doesn't matter as much as to where we are. So, you know, prior you had to be in New York or LA or San Francisco to get a lot of press. You know, ironically, I've left New York and been in Minneapolis the last the last eight years, and I've received, you know, more press in the New York Times being away from New York City than being in New York City. Um, That's ironic. <laughs> yeah. So one one would tell you that 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 there is a thirst, there is a hunger for delicious food throughout throughout the country. I grew up in Minneapolis. My parents moved here when I was seven years old, and and so as a result, I always wanted to stay you know, close to it and close to what the culinary scene was doing. And I really saw an exciting um, path forward when I when I thought about moving here. Well, it sure is an exciting city to be in restaurant wise now. I mean, yeah. and you kind of started that whole trend or you were involved in it from the beginning. So tell me a little bit about Spoon and Stable. Yes. Yeah, so Spoon, we opened up eight years ago. It was a horse stable. I'm sitting in the space right now. It was a horse stable that was built in 1906. Uh, and part of the space, you can see there's 18 horse stalls actually still in the space. And so we've kept those there. Uh, we've just sort of put drywall over them and, and painted them, but we've kept the windows there and the cutouts. And so, you know, we we decided this was an office building when I walked in, you know, where where I'm sitting actually is a private dining room. And this was where cubicles were when I when I looked at this oh. space. <laughs> And there was executive offices down one side of the restaurant, and then there was cubicles where the kitchen is. And our bar was our bar was their boardroom, you know. And and I really fell in love with the character of the space. I wanted a space that had that had character. I wanted brick. I wanted I wanted tall ceilings. I didn't want to have to do a lot to a space. And that that wasn't a financial decision. That was a character decision. You know, ironically, I've now kind of seen I've taken over more spaces that are that are older, and that that. That I think speaks a lot to 
I guess in many ways, the ethos of my life, which is looking at what came before us as to why we are where we are. Um, and, and, you know, so often we were quick to take these old buildings down, uh, but in, but in reality, they have so much character to them. So Spoon and Stable is a, I would call it an upper scale slash fine dining, you know, American restaurant. And having been here now eight years, it's fun to see its growth and, and where we can bring it. So you're still operating Spoon and Stable. Yep. Even, and you've opened some new places very recently. Yep. Yeah, so we have so all together. I mean, we have Spoon and Stable, we have Demi, uh, which is on the street behind Spoon and Stable. It's a twenty seat restaurant, uh, very fine dining, five nights a week. We do forty covers a night. We have Mara, which is in the Four Seasons, that opened up about six months ago. I have a cafe in the Four Seasons called Soka Cafe, also opened up about six months ago. And then we have two Belcor bakeries, one in Minneapolis, one in St. Paul. We'll open a third one in a suburb here called Edina, probably in the next three months. And then we have two catering companies. One is called Spoon Thief Catering, which is built for the general public. And then we have another catering company called KZ Provisioning, which is where we cook for athletes. So we cook for the Minnesota Wild, we cook for the Minnesota Timberwolves, and we cook for the Minnesota Lynx. Wow. How do you handle all that? You sound like you never rest. I mean, like, you know, like any, I mean, I think think this is a, this is sort of a, misconceived notion of chefs, you know, we're, we're CEOs, right? So, you know, I look at a, the CEO of any, any major company, it's like, how do they handle opening all their new stores? They have an incredible team and a great infrastructure. And we have both of those, you know, we have directors of operations, we have executive chef for the company, chief of staff, director of accounting. Uh, we have a lot of, a lot of very uh, high level executives who work for our company who help run all of this on a day-to-day basis mm-hmm. with me. But you still cook at uh, some of the restaurants occasionally or... Yeah, I mean, I help with R and I'm not cooking during service. That's for mm-hmm. sure. Um, you know, it's it's not my it's not my job, nor is it really where I want to be. In the sense of, mm-hmm. I'd rather cook with the cooks versus for the cooks. Um, I know how to cook my food. They're learning how to cook my food, so oh. I want, I'd rather teach them versus versus doing it myself. Right. Well, when you were developing the uh, menu for Mara, can you talk about you know what your vision was for that? Yeah, so I, I write a lot. I have a lot of journals, and I was looking through those journals when I lived in when I lived over in Europe in my early twenties. I spent a lot of time traveling and through the Mediterranean all around, and I spent a lot of time writing about those experiences. And so we really wanted to create a restaurant that had that feel, you know, that Mediterranean feel. There's, there's again, this is something that I think in general when I think Mediterranean, and when I ask a lot of my friends, hey, what do you think of when you think Mediterranean food? They say Greek. You know, and it's usually one country or or maybe two countries that they'll say. But in, in the reality is, it's twenty two countries touch the the Mediterranean Sea. So you have a lot of you have a lot of opportunity for creative freedom. You have a lot of opportunity for flavor combinations, and that really inspired me because it sort of got us out of a, it got a, got us out of a small box and just put us in a little bit larger of a box to say, okay, here are your parameters and let's build food around that. And tell me about the pita bread. I mean, I know that's gotten a lot of press and you use a local grain to create it. So um, tell me how you came up with that idea and why that's important to you. So Michael Salaminoff, who has Zahav in Philly, is a really dear friend. And we've done a couple of dinners here at Spoon and Stable together. And he was he was giving us some of his secrets to his pita bread. And so we 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 took that and ran with it. We use a company called Bakersfield, which is local to us here. And we use some local grains and flours, uh, which is what always made the Twin Cities quite famous and wealthy um, in the early days. And and so we we use those local grains and, and we stick to our double proofing method for that pita bread. And it's it is I mean, it's it's delicious. It's one of those 
I think I think a lot of people can be allergic to uh, can be gluten free until you have this pita bread and then all of a sudden you, you, know, you give it a little cheat here and there. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's but it's something that's just so it's so satisfying and warm. We, we par bake it in an oven and then for service, we bake it in a, in a wood in a wood hearth to order. And then we put a little Aleppo pepper, olive oil, fleur de sel and a little limon and mone on top of there. So does that come out gratis or does everyone order it um, separately? No, so that comes that comes with hummus. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. Cool. And do you focus mostly? I mean, you said there are 22 countries that border the Mediterranean, but is it primarily Middle Eastern in flavor or does it bring in others? 22 countries. We use it all. You have French, you have Italian, you have Middle Eastern, you have North African, you have Moroccan, right? You have all all, all over. So, right. so we, we actually don't focus on, on one. We focus on all 22. And do you ever have trouble getting in any of the ingredients or are you using things that are pretty oh. easily accessible? No, I think I, I mean the way that everything can be shipped nowadays. You can kind of mm-hmm. get anything you want, whatever you want. So, um, you know, we plan for that, and we have a bunch of great local farmers here who we've worked with for many, many years, and so we continue to, you know, um, feed those relationships by using their their soil that they have and growing pro- produce that we need, and talking to them about proteins that we need, et cetera. So that's great. I mean, the biggest thing we have to fly in, of course, is fish. I mean, we're landlocked, so we got to right. bring fish from all over. You don't serve any from the Great Lakes, like. Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> um, I lived in Chicago for a while, so I, I had a lot of you know walleye, sure. pike, and lake whitefish, and that yeah, kind of yeah, of course. <laughs> so now that you're back in Minnesota, I mean you've been there for eight years, but how do your roots and your upbringing inform your menus? Other than you know using the local grain and partnering with local farmers, was there anything like from your childhood that you're trying to incorporate, or any heritage um, thing? Not- not necessarily. I mean, I, I, you know, I grew up with a family that didn't go out to eat a lot. We didn't cook a lot at home. We were very busy with sports. Both my brother and I played hockey. And if anybody knows anything about Minnesota and hockey, that's a religion. And so it's a very, very busy activity. And you're pretty much six days a week playing that sport. And and the weekends, you're sort of running around. I have a, a son. My middle son is a hockey player. And I mean, I think Saturday from 1030 in the morning until 8 p.m., we were at hockey. And it was just practices, scrimmages and right. events sort of nonstop. You know, but I cooked a lot with my grandmother, Dorothy. And so we we have a lot of her influence in the space. We have her pot roast is on the menu. It was called Dorothy's Pot Roast. Um, so we try to take we, we try to take a little bit of that and bring that into bring that into what we're cooking and and making that not only accessible, but just it's delicious. I mean, at the end of the day, when it's cold outside and you and you want to feel sort of warm and and cozy, there there's nothing that warms you more than than a delicious pot roast with some mashed potatoes and and a little au jus. Do you ever bring any of the Southeast Asian um, population in? I know I thought I read that your baker is from Laotian descent. Yeah, so Diane, she doesn't she she hasn't worked for us for two years, but she 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 opened Spoon with me. Uh, she's Hmong, uh, mm-hmm. certainly, and so when she worked for us, yeah, she would bring in some of those flavors every once in a while too. Cool. And tell me a little bit about um, Demi. You mentioned that it's a fine dining restaurant. Does it have tasting menus? Is it like one menu? Only a tasting menu. It's one menu. You don't choose. We don't tell you what it is. Uh, there's no choice of wine. There's no choice of cocktails. You sort of just walk in and 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 let us do our thing. Wow, that sounds awesome. I really yeah. want to come and visit now. <laughs> yeah. And now um, Belcor Bakery, you mentioned that there are two locations, but you're about to open a third. So what are some of the specialties there? 
So the crepe cake is certainly something that it's gotten a lot of press for in the past. The crepe cake is, we actually started that at Spoon and Stable for brunch when we first opened for brunch eight years ago. And then when we opened the bakery, we we transitioned that crepe cake over to the bakery so people could get it seven days a week. You know, now, or at that time, they could only get it on, on Sunday. So uh, that's always delicious. The Kugimon sticks are great. They have a double chocolate chip cookie, which is gluten-free, which I love. We have some savory items, which are also very, very good and popular, like the deviled eggs. We have a chicken pot pie that we do seasonally that seems to fly off the shelf often. So, you know, the menu changes... I'd say probably three or four times a year, but it's kind of the same repetitive changes. We try not to uh, break too much out of that formula, having two and now three locations. It's more of a game of consistency uh, versus a game of creativity. And we've kind of figured out what it is that people like. And so Mm -hmm. we want to feed them that. So is it both eat in and take out? Like people come in there to take. And I, and I know um, the breads are kind of French inspired. Yeah, so we don't do breads at the bakeries anymore. So when we moved it out of Wyzetta, uh, the locations that we're in in both Minneapolis and St. Paul, those buildings don't allow for us to have the ventilation. So we actually don't do any breads at all in the bakery. It's all vinoiserie. Oh, okay. So you also found time to write your first cookbook called At Home, and that's just came out too. I mean, um, so many things happened this fall. So (laughs) So tell me about At Home and why you decided on that theme you know, sharing both your personal and professional sides. Yeah. So, you know, we started to do these cooking classes uh, called GK at home in the middle of the pandemic. And while we don't discuss the pandemic at all in the, in the book, which was very um, uh, intentional, you know, we started to do these cooking classes and, and, and it was a way to bring together our community. You know, we, we, we all kind of lost our community during, during that. Right. And, mm-hmm. and just the ability of going out and, and being taken care of. So we created these cooking classes and every Thursday night, we'd jump online for an hour. I'd cook with a handful of people, like 1,500 people, <laughs> and uh, and they would have dinner in an hour. And so when we got through doing that for about a year, we realized we had about 60 plus recipes. And if we added about 60 more or 50 more, we could just create our own cookbook. So we owned all the content. And so mm-hmm. we decided to kind of get to the finish line and do our own cookbook. And we ended up self-publishing that book, uh, which we didn't, we didn't go, we didn't go a very traditional route, which is, which I'm grateful for, you know, and and we, we skipped the publishing routes and we went the traditional or the non-traditional route and self-published it. And so that came out about five weeks ago, six weeks ago Mm -hmm. is when the book book officially got published uh, and had our pub date. And we're currently sold out of our first print. Wow. Uh, we have ordered a second round of prints that we will get early 2023. But, you know, thankfully we were featured in the New York Times last Wednesday and that pretty much took out whatever we had in stock. Yeah, I was really intrigued by it. I wanted to get a copy, but I guess I'll have to wait now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you also um, collaborate with Chef's Garden for the cookbook on some of the, um, I guess, sidebars and s- some of the recipes maybe. Yeah, well, we did a um, we did a, a box with them after the book came out. So they we they they took recipes from our book and then put it put it with all of their produce, and then Farmer Lee sort of packaged that with our cookbook. Mm-hmm. And yeah. do you do you source from uh, Farmer Lee Jones as well? We don't, we actually don't because we have so many local farmers that it would, mm-hmm. it would it would I actually buy a lot of his stuff from my house. To be, believe it or not, mm-hmm. uh, he has a great program where you can get. Every week or every other week, they just send you a box of beautiful produce. So I think we get it every other week right now, just because I love to support 
he and his team. Yeah. And in the cookbook, do you have any um, recipes from your childhood, like your grandma's pot roast? Yep. Dorothy's pot roast is in there. I have my chicken and dumplings dish that that she made for me every Sunday. Uh, there's a cookie in there called the sunbuckle cookie, which is a Norwegian mm-hmm. sugar cookie that's in there. So yeah, there's some, there's definitely some dishes there that I grew up with. Wow. Well, I can't wait till I, the second printing comes out. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I can't wait to get it to you. So tell me a little bit about your Synergy series too, where you invite guest chefs to collaborate on dinners with you. Sure. What are those like? Yeah. So we've been, this was our fifth year. We just, we just got done last week. We finished our last one with Chef Marcus Samuelson. He was our 20th chef. So we'll, we'll do it again next year. We haven't announced who the chefs are yet. Uh, we're just sort of finalizing all the details there. But you know what we do is we invite a chef to come here. He or she, they cook for us, with us for two days. It's always on a Thursday and a Friday. And what's inspiring is the Friday, we do a dialogue. We've been doing this the last two years, but we do a dialogue conversation. It's a one-on-one conversation that's moderated by uh, Allison Arth, who's a friend of mine who owns a company called Salt and Row, which is a hospitality and coaching consulting company. And And the intention of that is really for the profession and the people in our profession to listen to these chefs, you know, often our headlines and our bio are in head headlines often. And, and, and what is said in those is not, while it's always usually pretty true, it's also not how we got there all the time. You know, people tend to skip over the work of what it took to get where you are um, versus where you are today. And so, you know, I mean, I, I'm 43 years old. I started to cook at 15. Um, So there's a lot of years in between there before I could sit here and be on a, on a podcast with you, right? And a lot of things that I had to go through. So, you know, that's that's we we talk a lot about that in the dialogue and we sort of break all that down. But the the synergy series itself is we have sponsored by Bell Bank. San Pellegrino was a sponsor, Steel Light and Vial Life this year. And so they all help us offset a lot of our funds so we can then give a certain amount of proceeds to a, a, a nonprofit charity. This year was the Constellation Fund, which is local to us here in the Twin Cities. And what does the Constellation Fund do? What Yep. So they 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 venture out and sort of cherry pick all these different nonprofits and they they select who then gets the funds. Um, so they do a lot of the work that otherwise we would have to do. And so they're owned by a, a gentleman by name, name of Andrew Dayton, who I've known for a while. Uh, he and his his brother are good friends. How oh, cool. And yeah. do you do the um, videos in like one of your restaurants or is it in a we always do it at Four Seasons. Yes, yeah, so we do the dialogue conversation at the Four Seasons Hotel um, the last couple of years. And then we uh, we do the dinner, of course, at Spoon and Stable. And do you get people, I mean, obviously not at the dinner, but do you get people from all over watching the videos? Yeah, I'm not really sure. I don't have anything to do with the distribution or even knowing who watches them, but I'm sure that a lot of people watch them around. Yeah, I'm sure you got a lot of people watching your um, videos during the pandemic, too. Yeah, yes. Yeah, that's from all over. I mean, because I watch people from, you know, all over the country and the world. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your mentors in the industry. I mean, obviously, Daniel Balut was somebody you worked for. What influence did he have on you? And who are some of the other people that have influenced you? Yeah, I mean, Danielle certainly is a huge mentor to me, still is, and will always be. I mean, I, I feel like I sort of received my PhD in this business through him. You know, Thomas Keller is a big mentor of mine, and, and I've had the pleasure of working side by side with both of those gentlemen now for the last 15 years. You know, we run an organization together called Mentor, oh. uh, and we have two, two 
sort of arms of that organization. One is we train Team USA for the Bocuse d'Or, the international cooking competition that happens in Lyon, France every two years. And then the second foundational piece of that organization is that we grant scholarship money to young cooks around the country. So, you know, as, as a young cook, I would knock on the back door of somebody's restaurant and ask if I could work there for free for a month or two months. And, and I would do that, you know, saving up to do that. And so we try to take that away. Uh, we allow you know, everybody to apply to this. And there's a, there's a committee and a board that reviews all the applications. And if a cook from Texas says she wants to work at Tartine Bakery in San Francisco for six weeks, then we call the team at Tartine and we make that happen. And we still supplement her pay. And so she doesn't have to take PTO from her time and uh, away from the restaurant. And she can be fully paid while doing the stage, making it educational and, and then writing a report afterwards of really what they learned. So th- those are two really foundational pieces of that organization that I now run with both of those those gentlemen. Oh, that is neat. So they don't, yeah. they're not people who are in culinary school. They're people who are already working in the field. It's all over. I mean, you get some in culinary school, but for the most part, they're already in the field, whether it's one year out or four years out. You know, I mean, sometimes you get an applicant where, you know, they've worked at per se in 11 Madison Park and then they want to go work somewhere else. It's kind mm-hmm. of like, oh. We don't necessarily need to grant them a scholarship per se. They've already worked in two great establishments. They can probably go anywhere in the world now, but we really look for people that that you know might not be able to have the means to get out of their hometown, or you know might just not have the the courage to say, "How do I get a hold of Corey Lee at Bennett in San Francisco? I, I'm inspired by him. I'm a, you know I would like to work for him, but I don't I don't know how to call. I don't know how to email that. You know what do I do? Uh, we try to be sort of the conduit between them. Now, did you go to culinary school or did you learn on the job? It sounds like you I did. I went, yeah, I went to New, New England Culinary Institute. Oh, cool. So as we um, get closer to 2023, it's just a few weeks away now. What are you most looking forward to both professionally and personally? So I read I write a document every year in my in, and it's called the dream weaving document. And so a lot of that is both personal and professional. But, you know, try to shape sort of what, what I want my year and what I want my goals to look like. I tend to write a lot of my goals down and I do that for the simple fact that it's a great reminder to hold yourself accountable for things. You know, professionally, I'd like to see our company grow within where we are. That doesn't necessarily mean opening more or new places, but rather taking a really, really strong look at where we are today and seeing how we can continue to grow where we are and what that looks like. You know, how do we build a stronger foundation for future growth? So that way, if we ever are lucky enough to have an opportunity to open up another restaurant, whether it's locally here in the Twin Cities or outside of the state, we feel confident and comfortable to do so. You know, personally, my, my wife and I, we have three kids. So our life is crazy, busy with all of that. Um, so I just love to be able to make it to their sports outings and any sort of school things that they have. I can just, I just, I, I'm so grateful when I can sneak out of the restaurants to go watch them do those things. Do you see any of them wanting to be in a restaurant profession when they grow up? I don't know. I mean, I, it's a, they don't seem they don't seem to have that itch right now, which is, you know, whatever they want to do, it's up to them. Thanks so much, Gavin. It was a pleasure hearing about the passion you have for your profession. You can listen to Menu Feed episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Pat Kobe. Mm-hmm.